welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church of Taylorville, Illinois. I hope this podcast stirs your desire for the things of God, and we hope that your faith in Christ will grow like never before. Now let's get into the podcast. Glory to God. What a day. I feel like we've already had church. We could go, but uh, uh, we're not, uh, just in case your hope. So uh, you'll get out before, but not before others. So there's that. So before I get it started today and before I bring uh, the message I think that God has left on my heart for us here today, I would just like to honor some folks um, that are in the room. Uh, you're in the room. Hopefully they're all in the room. If you are currently a deacon and you're serving a term right now as a deacon, please stand. So if you're currently serving as as a deacon right now, please stand. We have a couple. We have five all total. We have a couple in the room. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Just want to to honor them. We have five total right now, but the new cycle of of the diaconate is going to be kicking off in January, where we'll have four, actually. And uh, so we're starting fresh in 2023, excited to see what God is going to do and Kevin Brown was elected. You elected him, and also Joe Newingham um, will also be serving as a deacon in this. I hadn't told you that before, but now you're being told. So there you go, in a good way. So of the church to see what it is that God has for us. Are we having issues with this microphone, Troy? All right, give me a handheld if this if this microphone's not working. Now would probably be a good time. So. I want to, that was your cue. Awesome. Thanks, Nate. Uh, you caught that. So we've been in the series called Hope, the Future is Waiting. And what we've been talking about is this hope, how God showed us in the Old Testament certain things about Jesus in the New Testament, and how the, the message of hope is something that is throughout the Bible. It is something that God has, has been showing His people for a long time. So for us, we, we can glimpse in the Old Testament certain prophetic statements about the Messiah that would come. His name is Jesus Christ. And as a matter of fact, the word Christ means anointed one or Messiah. So it's His, his title, just identifying Him as being the Messiah. But what we've been doing for the last couple of weeks, and I will up until next week as we finish this series on Christmas Eve is looking at these Old Testament, just precious Old Testament passages. And specifically today, we're going to look in Isaiah, and we're going to look at some characteristics of our Messianic King. If you're, if you're ready, say, I am. All right. Good to know that you're ready. So we're going to get there in just a couple of moments, but I have a confession to make first. Um, I have a confession, and it's, I feel a little bit weird saying this, but, but I'm a little bit envious of, of the newer generations. I am. I'm a little envious of the newer generations, and, and here's the reason why, is, is because they don't have to learn cursive, and I did. I just, I don't know, I just feel, I felt like I just needed to come clear. I mean, I love you, uh, younger generations, but I'm envious of you. You'll never have to figure out how to do the capital Q, which is the most worthless letter in the alphabet. Just so, I mean, literally, think how many times in your life that and the X, you never do that in cursive, right? But we had to do it. Younger generations, many of you don't have to, don't have to worry about that. Also, if you're a younger generation, you don't have to, to go through the trauma that we had to go through whenever we received 
our, our Garmin or our Magellan GPS. You remember that? And in the little box GPS, and you're in a foreign town, and then all of a sudden, it just switches to French. You know, merci. I'm like, merci beaucoup. Uh, no, 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 not merci beaucoup. No, 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 I don't need any of that. What I need is I need Subway, eat fresh. That's what I need right now. I need Subway, eat fresh, not the other thing. I don't need French. I don't know how to get out of this. And, and back in the day, back in the way back in the day, before Waze and Google Maps and Apple Maps and all the things, like we had to rely upon this thing. You go into a, a different town and, and it would guide you in. And man, it was, it was traumatic. It really was. And it would just switch a language that I don't know. Maybe you do. You're like, I know French, and you didn't even speak French a minute ago. I get it. I didn't. So I took Spanish uh, for a couple of years and learned not much. So there's that. Um, but one thing we can agree on is throughout the years, um, we, we in each generation have had some amazing hairstyles, have we not? Like throughout the years, we have. Like we've been changing and we've been aging, and our generations are clearly different, and we have different likes um, this is a, a picture from the, the Gen Z generation. I'm just, if we could show that. Here we go, Ron. There you go. Yeah. We're just going to call that the millennial mullet. Um, that's what we're going to, that's popular. So if you're a, if you're a Gen Zer, uh, you're welcome. So you didn't have to bring it back. You chose to. And there it is. Uh, millennials, the Gen Y generation. This, I just want to show a picture of this. This is every emo millennial in 2010. That's what this is. Um, so some of you have no idea how to relate to this, but in 2010, if you were a teenager, you get it. Um, and I had a teenager around that time frame, and I get it because that was the reality. So, and it was, you know, everyone is a little bit different. And of course, if you're a Gen Xer, like I'm a Gen Xer, we all love like the rocker hair and it, men or women, it didn't really matter. Um, as a matter of fact, I can't tell if they're men or women in that picture. So... There's that. It's just a day of curling irons and Aquanet, I think. So um, that might even look like your family picture. I'm not saying that it is, but it might. I don't know. It was the 80s. It was a long time ago. I remember. But uh, we love that. And then if you go way back and you're part of the boomer generation, this right here, yeah, the beehive, the bouffant. So the thing, the thing that's really interesting about all of these hairstyles is we actually thought they were cool at the time. So we did. We thought they were cool in our generation. And then years later, we look at that and we're like, I don't know. I'm kind of glad we don't do that anymore. And yet some of you, you're like, I wish I had that hair, you know, that you, you can't do that anymore. But it's, it's interesting because change is inevitable, is it not? And things are different. Each generation brings something different than the previous generation's. And what we all bring together is this idea of aging because time passes and aging brings change. And I don't know if you know this or not, and I, it's going to be a shocker for some, but gravity always wins. I just want you to know, we are literally in, in a fight against gravity and it just pulls us down physically. But the question isn't, are we changing because change is inevitable, but the question I would bring to you spiritually is, are you changing in the ways that you want to? Are you actually changing, not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense? Are you changing the way, when you look into the Bible, that the Bible says you can change? Are you pleased with that? And within your walk with God, is the change bringing a greater sense of hope and peace into your life? 
If you're changing to be more like Jesus and there's an increase of hope and peace, praise God for the work he's doing in you and praise God for the work that that he will continue to do. But if by chance that's not true of you, where you feel like there is a deficiency, perhaps, that you don't have the hope and peace, that you feel like there's a block or there's something lacking, today's message is for you. Because what is promised in Isaiah 11 through our Messianic King are not only key things about Jesus, but also key things that a walk with Jesus brings into our passage. This is what it says in Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. Isaiah is an interesting book of the Bible because Isaiah is actually divided up. We don't know it because when we read it, we just read all, all of the chapters, but it's, it's divided up, and the reading that we're going to get to today is part of what, they, what uh, a lot of theologians call proto-Isaiah. Somebody say that with me. Say proto-Isaiah. All right, somebody else say that with me who didn't say it a minute ago. Proto-Isaiah. All right, you guys need coffee. Here we go. Proto means first. And the reason why this is a key part of Isaiah is because Isaiah is such a long book. People believe that Isaiah himself actually penned chapters 1 through 39, but there are some other questions beyond that. We know that it's inspired. We know that it's infallible word of God, but, but there is a, a belief that there are other people claiming the penmanship of Isaiah who wrote it. Again, it's all Bible, but this is part of proto-Isaiah, part that they believe that he personally wrote. The key idea within this passage is simply this. Hope remains an ideal that there's a future ruler who will come from the house of David, and through him, we can bear fruit. We can bear fruit in Jesus bearing fruit in us. Verse 1, Isaiah 11 says this. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. End. So we see in verse one, there's a a couple things here that we will point out to, but I love what the theologian in uh, early church father Augustine said about this particular passage. He says that the gospel found in the New Testament is hidden in the root of the Old Testament. And what he's pointing to is passages like this that just so eloquently point to the Messianic King, and that would be Jesus Christ. Notice, if you will, in verse 1, it says that a stump will come up from the, or excuse me, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. There's some connecting passages in the New Testament in Romans 1, 2, and 4 says this, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And also in Revelation 5, 5, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, or excuse me, the root of David has triumphed. Connecting Old Testament, New Testament, so on and so forth. The stump, if you're taking notes, the stump is a metaphor for the remnant of the royal family of David. 
In Isaiah 6.13, it describes this, uh, the fact that, that the, the line of David was diminishing, and it had diminished and grown very small. Once David's dynasty was very large, and, and he himself was a great king, and yet every king after that was just a cycle of good king, bad king, good king, bad king. And then so the family line of David just kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller. However, the stump that, that is used here is a metaphor explaining the remnant of the royal family of David, meaning that there's always going to be a remnant. And we talk about this, we did talk about this in, in previous series, that there's going to be a remnant. There's always a remnant of believers. There's always a remnant. And this was prophesied here. So the stump is a metaphor for the remnant of the royal family of David. The shoot is a metaphor for the restoration that Jesus brings. So the shoot is a metaphor for the, res- for the restoration, not only that he does in our lives, but it, that he's doing in the world through our lives. We are a church that exists for God, for the city, for the nations. And yes, while our primary role is in evangelizing and in, in, in helping lost people to be found and to share Jesus Christ, but also it's to send out people to take care of the world that we live in. Sending out Christians that I think that there should be Christians in every, in every social science and in all of the other sciences there, in earth science and everywhere around the world. There should be Christians planted there bringing the good news, restoring parts of creation. We should be taking care of creation. Yes, we live in a fallen world. The world is talking about the system by which the world is governed by globalism and greed, comparison, and a lot of other things. But Christians have been sent on mission to evangelize the lost world and also to bring the good news to all facets of life. If you're a store owner, if you're a a business owner, if you're in middle management, or if you're in upper management, you should be showing Jesus to your employees and also to your employers. You should be showing Jesus to your customers. They should be looking at you and seeing the difference that Jesus is making in you because he's changing you from the inside out. That's part of the restoration. Isaiah 53, 1 through 3, talks about this. My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root on, in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic in his appearance. That's talking about Jesus. Nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him. What a picture. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Talking about humanity. This is a prophetic statement about when Jesus would come, there would be no defining characteristics about him. He would just like a, he would look normal. He didn't glow. So people walk around and be like, wow, that's amazing. Let me, let me go to him. But yet there were some things that were intrinsic to him that were different that drew attention to people. But in his physical appearance, he looked like everyone else. And he was despised. He was mocked. He went to the cross. He died on the cross, not for his sins, but for yours and for mine. And he willingly did it, surrendering his life. Jesus is the branch that Isaiah prophesied about. If you're new to the Bible or new to faith, 
You could go into the New Testament, into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those, we call them Gospels, but they're really four biographies of the life of Jesus. And each one is written a little bit different. For example, within the Gospel or the biography of Matthew, it's, it's showing David's righteous branch, meaning the, the Davidic king, that Jesus would be king. In the Gospel of Mark, it shows Jesus as the branch as a servant, and in Luke, it shows Jesus as the branch as a man. So it's, there are examples, more examples in that gospel than the others, just expressing the humanity of Jesus. And also, within the gospel of John, it's showing the divinity or the deity of Jesus, showing that Jesus is indeed God, which he comes right out of his gospel in Genesis, or excuse me, in, um, in John 1, 1 through 3, explaining how Jesus was involved even in creation which is a connection to Genesis, of course. Back into our passage. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. There are seven defining qualities of the Messianic king that are mentioned here. And I want you to do me a favor before you write any of them down. You will see that there are six blanks there. It's because I did not proofread this well enough. And you need to write down a seven and put another line there. If not, you're going to scratch your head and try and fill in a blank later and think that you made a mistake, and you didn't. I did. So just go ahead. There are, it says seven qualities of the Messianic king, and then number seven you have to hand write in. That is not on your guide. My bad. Let's look into verse two. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The first defining quality of the Messianic king was the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord rested on Jesus. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 3, that tells the, the story of Jesus' baptism. Notice what it says, starting in verse 13 of Matthew 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was open and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus embodied the Holy Spirit of God. Isaiah said this was the first of the defining qualities of our Messianic King, of King Jesus, that he had the Spirit of the Lord within him. There's a, another passage in, in Romans that I would like to read. And Romans 8 says this. Romans 8, starting in verse 9 you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, but your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. Jesus had the Holy Spirit of God in him, 
And if you are indeed a follower of Jesus today, you have the Holy Spirit of God residing in you. The second of the defining qualities of the Messianic king is wisdom. Is wisdom. Wisdom, I'll just give you a definition for this. Wisdom, in, in the way that it's implied, is this. It's a general capacity to have a right judgment in all things. It's the general capacity to have a right judgment in all things. Jesus was wise. He was wise even as a teenager when he himself went into the synagogue, went into, into the temple area, and, and he was the one standing, and the, uh, the religious leaders at the time were listening to him because of his wisdom and his understanding were beyond his years. He had the Spirit of God. The third defining attribute or quality of the Messianic king is understanding. Understanding, a definition for that is this, it's the ability to see to the heart of an issue. It's the ability to see to the heart of an issue. People who have understanding bring such gift to other people. When you're in, in, in community, in biblical community with someone, and you have that, that level of fellowship, and you see somebody who, who has that, that same wisdom that's promised that we can have, and also that, that understanding, not only the capacity to know some things, but also the, the, the understanding to see beyond the surface into the deeper things, that person brings such a value to the kingdom of God and such a value to the community that they're in. Because they shed light on the dark areas that we ourselves can't see. They shed the, the light of Christ into areas that, that when that happens to us and they give us advice and they share scripture with us and they share divine revelation with us, it's those people that we sit back and we say, we don't look in awe of the person delivering the news, we sit in awe of the God who delivered the news. Because we see just the Spirit of Christ coming through them as they're sharing and their understanding is there's, uh, within us, we see that their understanding is greater than themselves, that that is a God-ordained thing. God supplanted that in their heart. The next defining quality of the Messianic king is counsel. And a definition for that is the ability to devise a right course of action. So wisdom and understanding and also counsel, being able to know the right course of action. The Holy Spirit is our counselor. We sang about the wonderful counselor just a moment ago, borrowing that from Isaiah 9, verse 6. That God wants, that Jesus had the, that attribute, but also that is something that's on offer for us that we can have wisdom and we can have understanding, we can have the counsel of God. As a matter of fact, scripturally, we have the whole counsel of God right here. God's love letter to us. The next of the defining qualities of, of our Messianic king is power. And by power, it means the ability to see it through. The ability to see it through. So it's not only seeing things and being able to give counsel, but it's also embodying the Holy Spirit power to be able to actually make it through a situation. 
to make it through that, that, that period of grief, to make it through that, that time of, of turbulence within the soul, to make it past that, that time of disruption in your marriage where you're wondering what happened and what to do next and, and why aren't your kids talking to you anymore and, and what happened along the way. It's the power not to just know some things, but to do the things that God wants you to do. And Jesus fully embodied that. In every situation, Jesus knew what to do, and he did it. That's one of the remarkable things about him, is when we look at the life of Jesus through those biographies that I just mentioned, we will stand in awe of him to see his otherness and the difference, and just clear difference between him and humanity. The next is knowledge, should be the sixth, knowledge. And a definition for that would be enjoying a personal, intimate relationship with a person. So it's not head knowledge. It's more heart knowledge to know someone from the inside out. And I love that about Jesus, that Jesus, he just doesn't, he's just not some ethereal God who just sits up in the cosmos and he just does some, some, some holy rain every once in a while. Like he wants to know you personally. He wants to, to commune with you personally. He's not put off by your sin. He died for your sin. He simply wants your yes. He wants your, your acknowledgement and confession that you're a sinner, that you're in need of a Savior, and acknowledging that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. That's what he wants. He wants your yes. He'll work with you on everything else. He knows you but he wants you to know him. We live in a day and age where we think knowledge or just uh, in the, the New Testament word of, of Gnosticism or Gnosis, of just the idea of higher learning, and it's such a trap. I, I'm someone who loves to learn, but, but higher learning is not what's being implied here. This isn't some, some intellectual pursuit. This is a knowledge at the heart level of knowing people, and Jesus knew people. He walked intimately for for three years doing ministry with his disciples, with the ones that we know of and all the ones who were unnamed. And Jesus knew them. He knew their stories. When they were celebrating, he was celebrating. When they were weeping, he was weeping. Jesus is personal. He has a knowledge of us, and he wants us to get to know him. The last is a fear of the Lord. And if I'm honest, there's... There's a real lack of this in our day and age because there's been, there has been uh, much made of having a personal relationship with Jesus to the point that forgetting that he is God. Almost like taking Jesus off of his throne and putting him at our level like Jesus is our homie. And, and we have to understand that Jesus is personal and he's intimate, but he's still God. So the idea of the fear of the Lord is, yes, God wants to know us, and he knows us personally. He wants us to know him, but also he wants us to have the fear of the Lord and awe and reverence to the otherness of God. That when we look into the scriptures, that we don't look into the scriptures with mundane eyes, that we can sit and look at this with hopeful, faith-filled eyes and read the scriptures in awe that the God who moved is still the God who moves. 
That if God moved in the Old Testament, he moved in the New Testament. And if the church has been persevering for the last 2,000 years, then God can do a work in your life. That means that you're not beyond his reach. You're not beyond his care. Your brokenness doesn't scare him. He simply wants you to understand who he is and give your life to him. I want you to know that there are there is, uh, is no uh, cheat code to the spiritual life. There's not. There's a cheat code for a lot of other things. I remember when my son and I, he was more the gamer, not really, really into it, but he was a gamer, and a way that I connected with him is we agreed to play one game because I loved skateboarding, and I grew up skateboarding, and then even as a dad, uh, I used to skateboard with Austin whenever he was, whenever he was younger and had a lot of fun. Um, didn't do anything crazy, but it was fun, and we used to skate around. So he got into video games, so I thought, well, I want to connect with something that you're connecting with, but I wasn't going to get lost in all the other games. So we, we got into Tony Hawk Pro Skater 4. Yeah. And it was good. It was good because you didn't have to know anything to play. You could just randomly hit buttons, which is what I was actually good at. So if I would hit a ramp, I would just like up arrow, down arrow, A, B, A, B, X, X, Y. Like I was just doing all the things and like it would spin and twirl and sometimes land and we had a lot of fun. I didn't really even know at the time, but and if some of you, if your last connection with video games is, is Pong, I'm sorry, you don't know this doesn't, I don't know, you're, you're like, if it's like Qbert and like, like old school Pac-Man, I don't even know if there is a cheat code for that. But for everyone else who knows, you know, um, so there are cheat codes within video games and certain things you could hit and it gives you powers beyond the normal player. I never knew any of those cheat codes, but all those cheat codes exist within games. I want you to know this morning that, sure, yes, there are, there are cheat codes at games and you can even cheat in life, but there's no cheat codes to the spiritual life. There's no cheat codes to the spiritual life. The spiritual life begins with forgiveness. That's where it all begins. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 says this, You were dead because of your sins, and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all your sins. He canceled the record of the charges against you or against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross in this way. He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. And that is a good place for a loud amen. The spiritual life begins with the forgiveness of your sins. The question from my heart to yours is, have your sins been forgiven? Have you asked Jesus to forgive your sins? Just knowing that Jesus died on on the cross for you doesn't mean that you're forgiven. You have to ask for forgiveness, acknowledging that Jesus already died for you. In the original passage, in verse 1, there's this beautiful part that I was stuck on. Throughout my study, I just kind of hovered around these two words at the end of verse 1. I'll read the whole verse and then highlight the last two words that I, I was just hovering around. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. To bear fruit means change. It implies change. 
The only way that you and I can be changed is when we have a life connected to Jesus. 1 John 3, 2 and 3 says this, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, meaning Jesus, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Philippians 1.11 echoes a similar sentiment in, in that the Apostle Paul wrote, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And this, this verse highlights the concept of righteousness, which is attributed to believers. And because they're right with God, and they're forgiven of their sins, they can have God bear fruit in their life. Jesus said a similar thing in John 15. If you have your Bible, I'll allow you to flip there, and I'll give you time to do so. I want you to really see this and not just hear this. John 15, 5 through 8. Notice how Jesus talks about this and what is required to actually have fruit in our life, the Gospel of John. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Jesus is saying to you and I, the only way that our lives can be changed or to to have fruit is for us to be connected to Jesus. So if you would like For there to be change in your life, you must be connected to Jesus. If you would rally at the thought of having more hope and peace in your life, look nowhere else than Jesus. If you would like to have a greater understanding about what to do in your current circumstance, look no further than Jesus. If you would like to know how to raise your kids, look no further than Jesus in his word. If you want to know what a godly marriage looks like, don't look at the world, look at Jesus. And however, if you want to know how to change the oil on a 71 Chevelle with a 454 and an SS package, go to YouTube. For everything else, go to Jesus. Like, if we really believe this, Jesus would produce fruit in us. This plant that's here, I do not have a green thumb, but I am proud that this thing is still alive. I got this for my birthday, and it was a surprise. That's what they call a succulent, I guess. Correct me if I'm wrong, if some of you know green things. Every other thing that's green in my house or in my office is plastic, with the exception of that. That's real. And the thing is, I can't make this thing grow. I can't. 
All I can do is I can put this in situations to help it grow, but I myself don't produce water, and I myself don't produce the sun. God does that. But what I can do is I can put it in a situation, in a circumstance, and in the right condition so that it may grow. But ultimately, I'm not the one who makes it grow. So it is with spiritual change in our lives. We don't change ourselves. For as as much as we try the self-help methods, and we read the books, and we listen to the gurus, and they make millions of dollars, and they sell a lot of books, those books in and of themselves, and the gurus who purport those books, they can share with you certain things, but the true spiritual change that's required in your life is not manifested or manufactured in yourself or by a guru or a self-help book. It is by the Holy Spirit of God, and the way that we connect with the Spirit is through Jesus. The same Spirit that was in Jesus is in believers today. We don't produce the fruit of the Spirit. We don't. God does. We simply put ourselves in a condition to allow the change to happen. We open ourselves up to God. We, we sit in gatherings like this. We come to church. Great place to grow. We join a life group. Great place to grow. We serve. Great place to grow. If, you, if you're stuck in your walk with God and you're not serving, I just unlocked the key to the next, the, the next step for you to grow in. Because if you're not serving God, and I'm not just talking about, well, I serve God by putting up a verse on my, on my Facebook. Okay, you may be, but what I'm talking about is serving God in the church. You have a spiritual gift. If you're in Christ, you have a spiritual gift to be used in the church. Are you? And if you're not, we may have just pointed to the issue in your spiritual walk while you've never grown that past that point from 15 years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago because you're simply thinking that all I have to do is let Jesus change me instead of me saying yes to the steps and the conditions of which Jesus brings the change in me. Are you serving? Are you giving? Generosity is one of the things that it will, it, it's, it's a faith walk. Are you giving? Are you committed to giving? Are you faithful with your finances? Are you faithful with your time? That's just saying yes to Jesus. And once we do those things, we create in ourselves, we put ourselves in a position for God to create change in us, which is the fruit that Isaiah was talking about in chapter 11 at the end of verse 1 when the promise is there that that Jesus ultimately in and through his people will bear fruit. If you're not serving, I think we just pointed to something that needs to change in your life. And if you're not serving, maybe, maybe the step of faith moving forward is write your name on the connection card and write, say, I would like to serve. I, I would like to have a conversation about serving. And put your name and your number. Don't be mousy and say, I'd like to serve and not put your name. Put your name on it. 
We simply put ourselves in a situation to God to grow us. Serving is a great way to do it. Giving is another. Being in the place where God's word is being preached. Solo Christianity is a dead Christianity. If you want to grow, if you want to bear fruit, you want your life to be fruitful, you want Jesus to bear fruit in you, put yourself in a situation to grow. Would you stand? Holy Spirit of God, we need you now. God, let this not just be another altar call, another time passing, another song, another song and dance, another uh, another squeamish time with somebody in the seats where they don't come forward or they don't respond to the gospel. God, let this not just be another time where we just gather and just sit in our seat unmoved and unmovable. Spirit of God, move in lives today. Maybe somebody needs to come forward and they just need to come to you and say, God, I want to I, I just repent because I've been slothful. I haven't been serving. I've been waiting for everybody else to serve me and it's gone too long. Maybe your first step is coming forward and repenting of that because it, it deems repentance. Maybe it's somebody who's not been faithful with their finances And they want to be generous, but yet they haven't been. And now, God, you're just whispering to them, hey, you need to be faithful with your finances. Maybe the first step is is that acknowledgement of just that repentance, just coming forward to say, God, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Maybe it's for somebody else and they say, you know what? I'm stuck in time. I'm like, my faith stopped 10, 15, 20 years ago. And I, I, I don't think I've grown at all. Maybe the key that will unlock that growth is you coming forward, being honest with us and honest with God to say, God, I'm sorry. I repent of that. And maybe for you, you've just gone through the motions for so long that you are unmoved because in your heart you were unmovable. God, I pray that you would just take out that heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh, a heart that loves God and then is sensitive to his leading. God, have your will, have your way today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.